0: Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com. Spirituality is having some relationship with your heart or, you know, the heart chakra or some sense of, it doesn't mean you're always floating around in there, you know, in some radiant state of ecstatic emptiness or something like that but it means that you know you've had some glimpse of that maybe and you know that that's a possibility that you don't always have to be up in your head so i think spirituality might be an awareness of the relationship between your head and your heart
1: Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman and I produce this podcast and we're returning today with another episode of the Real Life series for episode 216 of the Meta Hour. We're bringing you a conversation with the hilarious, the talented Duncan Trussell. If you don't know Duncan's work, he's a stand-up comedian, an actor. He has a wildly popular podcast, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour. And he is also the co-creator of an animated series on Netflix called The Midnight Gospel, which he co-created with Pendleton Ward in 2020. And that show is kind of based around recordings from his podcast and it features some people that you definitely know like Trudy Goodman, David Nickturn and the venerable Ramdas and Duncan is someone that I would call a devotee of Ramdas also that's how he first connected to Sharon as being part of the Open Your Heart in Paradise retreats in Maui that were centered around Ram Das and his teachings and still happen today, even after his passing. And so Duncan is a big part of that community as well. So we're delighted to have him here on the podcast. He is just a hilarious person in general. And I love hearing him engage with the Dharma because he's kind of an incredible skeptic and asks so many questions that I think most of us have, but (laughs) don't have the wherewithal to just bluntly ask. So I'm not going to say too much about the conversation today, because I'll let you just go on the journey together with Sharon and Duncan. Before we dive in, a quick announcement. In the coming month, we'll be wrapping up the Real Life series. We have recordings coming with Valerie Carr, Joelle Leone, the Holistic Life Foundation, Mark Epstein, and Daisy Hernandez. And we'll be returning to the mental health series soon, in a couple weeks as well. So without further ado, here is Duncan Trussell and Sharon Salzberg.
2: Welcome back to The Summit. I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm here with Duncan Trussell, who is a comedian, a podcaster, a meditator, a mensch, I just called him. A mensch. A mensch mensch as well. Uh, I'm so delighted to have Duncan with us today. And before we get into conversation, I'll just say Duncan is a stand-up comedian, a podcaster, a writer, and an actor. Duncan's created a show for Netflix called The Midnight Gospel. He hosts his own podcast. Duncan Trussell Family Hour, DTFH, where he frequently invokes applicable dharma teachings for both daily life and for exceptionally difficult circumstances. Duncan also hosts a weekly meditation session and discussion of mindfulness practice for fans that subscribe to his work through Patreon. I didn't know that. I'm going to subscribe.
0: You better not. I'll get you an account. I can't do this if I think you're watching, Sharon, and it's like just I, again, I appreciate all those plugs, but I try to remember every meditation group. I start off not a meditation teacher. And I always recommend you. And I always Thank tell you. people, you, Trudy, Jack. I'm like, there's real meditation teachers. I'm a i am you know, I'm a sporadic meditator. So I try not to get too highfalutin with this stuff and and and, and confuse people. Um but we do have a wonderful group that just sits together every Monday. Mm-hmm. It's fabulous. I always have felt that
2: the best guides are the people who've been through a lot because otherwise it's a little abstract, right? Right. So maybe you can tell us how you became interested in meditation and mindfulness.
0: Well, you know, I think my first contact with it was my mom got this, you know, had books, really like a lot of spiritual books, because after the divorce, she started like dating uh, new age dudes and like they got her into this stuff. I think she's always spiritual, but the book was Raja Yoga by Yogi Ramacharaka. Now later, much later, I found out the guy's name's like Steven. It's not Ramacharaka. He invented it. He was this like British guy who wanted to write books on the occult and nobody's going to buy a book on the occult by a dude named Steve. Yogi Ramacharaka, you got my attention had a cool symbol on the front. And so the book was actually, you know, not bad. It was just the basics of yoga and meditation, of course, was mixed in there. And, you know, I just felt a a gravity towards it or something. You know, I don't know how to explain it. And so I can remember the first time I meditated, like sitting down by my mom's bed, crossing my legs, and I think I managed to stay still for like two minutes, and I told my brother, "I didn't move for two minutes. It was amazing." And uh, that, and then ever since then, I've been interested. And my mom loved Ramdas, you know. And so I, we would go on these long trips, and she would play Ramdas when I was a teenager, and I would pretend not to like him because my mom liked him, and you're not supposed to like the things your mom likes. But I really would listen and. Um, so yeah, that was the beginning of it, I guess you could say.
2: Oh, cool. Um, what are the things you might've thought were meditation practice in the past, but learned were not meditation once you started studying with David
0: Nickturn? Ha! Ah, well, that's a great question. Um, and what I love about David is that, and he's a perfect teacher for me because I'm so so everywhere and I, I i'm very very attracted to like astral plane stuff and all of that stuff It just i'm fascinated by ufos and aliens and he is teaches this wonderfully simple method of a uh, sitting practice that is in the beginning was actually quite excruciating and um So if I'm going to use that as the basis for just a a sort of basic meditation practice, then I guess you could say that if you're not like, technically, if you're not, you know, if you're not sitting in this and, and being still and watching, resting your attention in your breath and noting every time you think and returning the attention to the breath, then just based on that, you, you couldn't necessarily say that you're meditating. You might be doing some kind of contemplation or something like that. But I'm, again, I'm just saying like the breaststrokes, the breaststroke, you know, maybe you're doing the backstroke or maybe you're floating on your back or doing some kind of free swim. But from that perspective, and that's what I like about it is that there is a structure mm-hmm. that is for people like me, really important and wonderful, because otherwise I will convince myself I'm meditating when I'm watching walking dead and, Drinking whiskey or something whats it is in meditation too right um, so yes, I would say that that would be meditating and then everything after that would be post meditation
2: well it's interesting that you say that because um, in a lot of systems of meditation they talk about balance where we're both at the same time deepening calm and tranquility and concentration and strengthening energy and interest and like aliveness and um, people also have natural tendencies. You know, some people have a lot of energy. Some people don't have very much. And right, um, you know, I would also say that um, I am the kind of person like when I am practicing, I'm helped a lot by structure, by simplicity, yes. you know, by having a container. Not everyone feels that way, right. but it really helps me uh, in a lot of ways. I don't have that much energy, but I have a tendency toward distractedness. You know, just like yeah. Acing out, going all over the place, and so uh, I love very simple, repetitive, structured practices.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I love them, but I, I, I know that if not for that, then I can, I'm all over the place. And so, but I think some people are the opposite. Some people are the opposite. <laughs> They're hyper structured. Their whole life is this structured thing, and so getting out of that structure is the challenge for them. Yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's the opposite. That's just not yeah. me.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree. Some people are, uh, they feel so trapped by structure and so free when they are open. Opening. Exactly. So, yeah. What is spirituality to you? Do you have a, a these words are difficult, you know, because if you say spirituality, a lot of people do think about the occult or, you know. Yeah, sure. Astral projection or something like that. But what do we call that realm of not Spiritual. just ordinary being,
0: you know. Yeah, I mean i I think that the word has been so hyper commercialized these days, and has been used to sell everything. Water. I'm sure there's some kind of spiritual water out there. It, 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 so that over time, when you hear that, uh, so many times, it well, it, it stops meaning anything at all. And and some people will think that they'll say, "Well, I'm spiritual." What they mean is, I want to, I hope I'm a good person or something like that. But if I had to say it right now, and I think that, that my definition of it is constantly changing, it, it pendulum. Sometimes it's like there's no such thing. This is just another fairy tale we tell ourselves to imagine or something different. When I'm being particularly cynical or dark, but now I would say, um, uh, spirituality is having some relationship with your heart or the, you know, the heart chakra or some sense of, it doesn't mean you're always floating around in there, you know, in some radiant state of ecstatic emptiness or something like that. But it means that, you know, you've had some glimpse of that maybe. And you know that that's a possibility that you don't always have to be up in your head. So I think spirituality might be an awareness of the relationship between your head and your heart.
2: When did you meet Ramdas, and uh, how did you meet him?
0: So, yeah, that was, I went through this terrible period in my life where I was very, de- I was like horrifically depressed and really depressed. Um, like, you know, the real deal where you're just, you don't, you can't return calls. You can't talk to anybody. You can't, you're just done. And, um, but in that state, it was really rotten. In that state, I, I don't know. I just recalled something about how service helping is one way to get out of that. And I was all foggy. And it's, I found a copy of Beer Now my, that I had. And in the back is the Love Server Member Foundation. And I've been doing podcasts. So it's the only thing I, I thought I could even, that they, they would be remotely interested in. So I just sent an email saying, I could teach you how to do podcasts or help with podcasts or something. And then that's, that's when I'm, you know, R- Raghu came to do my podcast. I, by the, I already had a picture of Neem Karoli Baba on my wall, and he saw that and was like, okay, uh, I think he, he liked that. And then, But I didn't really know much about Maharaji like I do even now. From there, um, we started a friendship, and, uh, and then my mom died. And I was just crushed. And, and again, just the worst depression ever again. And then just I was in bed. I was paralyzed. I just I was like so depressed. Not to be too much information here, friends. I don't know if you've ever been this level of I don't know folks out there. if you have ever been that state where you're in bed and you think, you know, I'll just wet the bed. Like, I don't think I'm going to get out of bed like that. And so Raghu called me like somewhere in the midst of that. And he's like, just come to this retreat. And like, it's like he understood. He's like, listen, get up, go to the computer, buy the plane ticket. Trust me, just come to this thing. It was like the sweetest thing ever, ever. It's like he just knew. And so I did that, went to this retreat immediately felt I'm just going like you're in Hawaii. So you're immediately like, okay, maybe I might be able to survive this. And then this was when they were doing it at a smaller place called, I think, Lumeria. Mm-hmm. And it was mixed in with like trips to Hawaiian sacred, sacred sites. I mean, I'm t- that w- I think you could say at that point, I'm peak cynical. So, which is a bunch of BS, really, you know, because underneath it, you're not like that. But I mean, frozen. And so I'm just like ju- hyper judging everybody except Ram Dass. But everybody else, I'm just like, oh, Look at these, look at these old hippies! What have I done? Oh my god! But it, I still liked it. And then Raghu, at one point, they were going to look at a volcano or something, and he's like, "You're coming with me." Took me to Ramdas's house. I was suddenly in a pool with Ramdas, Roshi Joan in Halifax. Roshi Joan is carrying Ramdas around the pool. They're laughing like children. They're throwing a tennis ball to each other. I'm paralyzed with like, I mean, I just can't understand how suddenly this is happening. Like, cause I really loved him, you know, just from college and be here now. And I just, I, and my mom loved him, And so it was just, I couldn't understand it. And so he, you know, again, I, I don't, You know, they talk about Dharma transmission or something like this stuff. So, like, I can remember he, it's like he caught me looking out from that incredible view. And he caught me in this moment of, like, remission of grief or something. And he goes, ah, hmm." And that was like, I think that was like, that was wrapped up in that was everything. Like, it will, it, it gets better. Look, you, you, it, it, it gets better. This is better. And then he goes, I want to talk to you in that fake kind of way. I don't know. He had this like cool ferocity to him. And then, like, suddenly I'm in Ramdas's house and he like rolls up in the wheelchair and he goes, Uh, he's like, you know, I was so grieving. He's like, he pointed to his head and he's like, you're here. He's like, you need to get here. And he got that big Ram Dass smile and he goes, we can help you do that. And it was so cool. I mean, I, you know how it is when you're getting, like, I, I don't want to call it formal Darshan. I mean, there's a difference. There's something else was happening here. It's not just like, hanging out, with, uh, eating together or something. This was something else. And then, Sharon, he um, we talked, and I said, and I'm crying. I can't not cry. I'm crying. And I'm like, I wish my mom were here. She loved you. And he got that. He's like, she is here. And it was wild because it wasn't like something like, oh, she's here. It was like, no, she's here. And I believed, I still do believe it. And then we had this wonderful little conversation that I think changed my life. It set me on a trajectory, I guess you could say. It was like suddenly whatever awful current I was stuck in, my boat was now not in that current anymore. And then, uh, yeah, he goes, this is the weirdest part. But, you know, within that sort of sacred space, you, everything that happens, you... Remember, everything that happens means something. And so at the end of it, you got this big this cat jumped in his lap and he goes, She sleeps on my chest at night. Now I'm telling my brother about this later. And I'm like, Jeff. And then he's like, Yes, yeah, cat. He said, She sleeps on his chest at night. And my brother, long pause, he goes, You don't remember, do you? I'm like, remember what? He's like, that's what mom used to say. Don't you remember that? That the cat slept on her chest at night. Mm. <laughs> oh. A little like miracle bomb, you know, like it was a time bomb, like no like BS clairvoyant, like I'm speaking for your mom, but just that sweet, subtle little leak of like, I don't know, that thing. I know you're familiar with it. You know, now I associate that with Maharaji. Like there's a sense of humor in it. There's a specific sense of graceful humor in it. So yeah, that's the story. I'm sorry if I went on too long.
2: No, no, that's fabulous. And. I should say for anyone listening who doesn't know all the names, uh, Ramdas's guru was named Namkarali Baba and uh, was often called Maharaji. And so, um, when Ramdas uh, was uh, fired from Harvard and for uh, administering psychedelics with students, and uh, went to India and, and went from being Richard Alpert to Ramdas under the tutelage of this guru and. Uh, when he came back, he told many people. Apparently, he wasn't supposed to tell anybody. Told many people yeah. about his experience, and there was a whole wave of people in my time who went off to India. You know, late, very late sixties, early seventies. I went in nineteen seventy. Uh, began meditating in January of nineteen seventy-one. Um, and Ram Dass's book. He was there as a student, also um, because his guru Maharaji had just dis- had kind of playfully disappeared. And uh, yeah. so they were doing these meditation courses sort of waiting to find him again. And remember these are days, no internet, no cell phones, nothing like that, you know? So uh, everything was sort of a miracle. And uh, Ram Dass' first copy of Be Here Now arrived and it was not a bound book. It was a box and there was all this stuff in there, like a chai recipe and uh, you know, how to, how to chant home or whatever. And, yeah. Uh, so he was really this tremendous pioneer. And, I, and the other thing I wanted to say was like, shout out to Ragu and shout out to Ramdas, of course. But, uh, you know, Ragu being the first person, because so often we're taught to hide our pain or that there's something wrong with us if we're in pain. And that, of course, leads us not only to have less compassion for ourselves, but to have less yeah. compassion for others. Because we, you know, we don't want to see it or if we're near it, we feel we have to fix it. Right. And so people come with sort of a weird sense of responsibility, which is not theirs. Uh, yeah. And then they feel alienated. And, you know, there's so much bound up in the stigma and the, the rejection that is not even the original pain, which is hard enough. Yeah. To bear. And so, you know, what we're looking for, I think, as human beings is not someone to fix us, but someone to accompany us. Mm -hmm. that we go through this journey we're
0: -hmm. not so alone yeah that's beautiful the whole fixing thing oh so it's but i get it i mean i do get it of course like you you have this sense of like this you have some intuition that maybe life doesn't have to be like this just maybe there's a, a way to not be like constantly like fluctuating between anger for others or anger at yourself or your past or you just have that sense that's a good thing i mean i I think uh um in the bhagavad-gita i can't remember the exact verse but krishna is saying here are the people who come to me and i think the first one he says is the seekers after gold and i have always at first you read that and you're like what i thought this was supposed to be about no possessions no stuff but um i understand it now I understand it now cuz cuz what he said what happens is you think you want gold you think you want you have this idea of what you might be like if you were better you have this idea of what your relationships might be like if you were just finally you did it you started jogging ate the right food silly musk eh, and whatever the other stuff you think is going to but then and so you 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 find your way to meeting people like you or Ramdas and I think what ends up happening is your initial reasoning for whatever it was that you were doing that become, you don't even, that becomes less, you forget about it. You, and then the whole gold thing, even though I'm, I'm, I'm never going to say no to gold in this incarnation, you realize who cares about how much gold you have. If you're if you've tied a tourniquet between whatever the connection is between your ego identity and, and you know, your ability to love doesn't matter if you're, that's the dragon. That's the archetype of the dragon. The thing just lonely in some dank cave sitting on gold, guarding it for no reason.
2: Well, the gold is also the love, right? It's the love we can cultivate for ourselves, even in the face of the ridiculous, you know, places we get to and the um, really difficult places we get to and, the gorgeous places that we get to that are also fleeting. Uh, we can have a quality of love and love for one another because life is full of ups and downs for everybody. We all want, I think, some sense of belonging and some sense of being whole and it's not that easy to come to, you know, we're told a lot of myths about where happiness is going to be found and we kind of go for it and, you yeah. know, endless accumulation or, really brutal competition against one another and just put anyone else down, you'll feel better about yourself and we just get lonelier and lonelier. And, you know, so it's, it's not easy, but it's possible. And that's the extraordinary thing is to break out of that. And also uh, I thought of, of course, love when you were speaking about uh, both Ram Dass and Neem Krali Baba, because um, lots of the, lots of the stories around somebody like uh Maharaja Neem Krali Baba or what we would probably call, uh, paranormal or, sure, you know, something like that, you know, where he, um, uh, I mean, I have friends who went there as just one example and he, uh, kept them there. This, this couple, um, in the ashram, booted everyone else out, kept the couple there, like for a weekend or something like that. And then on Sunday night, he said to the man of the couple, um, you should call home. Your family needs you. So this is India with no cell phones, no fax machines, no computers. If you wanted to call an international call like that, you had to like go to a major city, check into an international expensive hotel, book a call, a trunk call for like 24 hours hence, you know, go to like a little room and scream over the phone. So he does all that and goes to the little room finally and screams at his mother and says, hello. Which, you said, know, thank God the State Department found you. What? Like, woo, you know, and there's so many stories like that, but they're almost like um not quite irrelevant because they can make people think, what is reality? And that's kind of good. But yeah, you know, it's like they're not the point. The point is the love. Yeah. You know, with which he seemed to have encountered people and helped engender in them. Yeah. You know, and Ramdas would be a great example.
0: Yes. Yeah. That, uh, you know, this is sort of when I started meditating and got through the, you know, at one point I told David, David, I can't do this. When I sit still, it feels like I'm on fire. And he goes, Duncan, just so you know, it's not the (laughs) that's in you. It's not the meditation setting you on fire. You're experiencing like all of the stuff you're, you're, you finally like not distracting yourself. He didn't use those words. He just said, that's you, not the meditation. Um, but then something started happening, which I would have these moments of feeling the way I assumed you only felt when you were a kid. So all of a sudden I'm feeling these moments of like, wait, this is what I felt like when I was in summer camp, or this is what I felt like when I was walking with my mom at the beach or, and i you, you 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 pair those experiences the, the the quality of them with whatever was happening around you oh well i can only feel that way if i'm in a younger body with my mom or if i'm you know have some more freedom or if i don't know all this stuff i know now about the world or whatever and so that's i think when people are talking about love or emptiness or whatever the particular word is you want to give for that spaciousness thing, it's, that's one of the most delightful things is to realize, yeah, you guess what? You don't have to fly to Hawaii. You don't need a time machine that there is this possibility that yeah, actually that's what you are all the time. And, and there, there's a way now the for people like me, addicts, you know then of course you're just like well i want to feel that now again and then that that's produces all kinds of um, all kinds of trouble when it comes to meditating because now you're grasping at some experience but David, you know he would he often talks about choking trump or rinpoche said disown 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 it like whatever that thing was before it's not right now so let go of that or you'll get stuck trying to go back in time to the last time you had some peak meditation experience.
2: And so it goes. So So in uh, my book, real life, I wrote that not allowing ourselves to feel an emotion or fully inhabit our bodies might've been smart survival tools at some point, but now like a discarded piece of equipment, they may not be so functional anymore. Therefore encountering them, We work to recognize them, to forgive ourselves for what we're feeling, to see more deeply into the heart of the feelings, and to not identify with them as fundamentally, essentially who we are. So that sounds like that process, right? Of facing even uh, the most um, sorrow-filled or difficult kind of mind state and not trying to deny it, yet not
0: having it define you either. Yes. I mean, but you know, and it, but it all makes sense. Doesn't it? It all makes sense. Like we have in the, cause we live in uh, time space, you get away from things that seem like they're going to hurt you. If you are too close to a fire, you back off a little bit. It all makes sense. Like all of it. I get why I burrowed up into my head and I get why I was proud of how I could numb myself down. I get it because the assumption is, D- don't go there. Like, don't go there. You really want to feel that you want to feel that it'll make it worse. It'll catch you on fire in a bad way. Not some romantic poet I'm fire of love way, but, but it, it's actually is the romantic roomy poet way. It's like that thing is a kind of fire that you, that, that once you've experienced it enough, you, you realize that that's where the action is. You want to emulate, you want to, you want it. And, and um, yeah, so I get it's counterintuitive. The whole thing is counterintuitive if you're basing your idea of how to stay safe on the notion that we'll get away from things that hurt. Because it even doesn't even hurt that long. And that's the other thing. I mean, when you just get in there, it's not like it's, it goes away. It's not like it's, it's not uncomfortable, but it's certainly worse it's worse. What do you want? You know, like those spooky stories where uh, somebody has like a person, like someone, someone's calling them and saying, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And so they call the operator like, get the police. They trace the call. The call is coming from inside your house. You know, the thing that the thing is in your own house. It, it, what are you going to do then? Take a nap? You've got like a murderer in your house. It's the way to deal with that is to face it. You know, to like it's a tortured analogy here. Right? But I just don't think ignoring whatever whatever it may be, at least for me, I have not that has not been a successful strategy. Uh as far as I can tell.
2: I love the way you've just phrased that. It's not been a successful strategy. It's very Buddhist, actually, of you, because <laughs> you know, there's not like a value judgment placed on saying having immense fear come up in one's mind, except that if we get entangled in it and overcome by it, we're going to suffer and we're going to likely cause suffering for others. And so uh, that's not a direction we want to be cultivating. And yet um, to have like a ton of shame about what we're feeling and thinking it's wrong, or I've been meditating for 50 years. God knows it should be gone by now. It should have sure. been gone decades ago. Why is it still here? Spent a lot of money in therapy. Why is it still here? You know, it's not a successful strategy for getting work. free of those things. It just doesn't work. And we've tried well, them, many well, of us, for a long time. So
0: maybe yeah, we it can, did. it didn't work. If it worked, we would be in a utopia. Yeah, yeah. It would just be it would we would be in Shambala if that was the the thing that worked. But yeah, it's a it, you know again yeah that that stuff. About, oh, I've meditated this long. You know, I was just talking to the to the first uh, teacher uh, who taught me Buddhism, Tejo Munich. She's got a wonderful woman's meditation temple in Asheville called Great Tree Temple, and mm-hmm. she is amazing and. Yeah, I was telling her the shame uh, the shame thing. I'm like, you know, I feel like I did have some glimpse of emptiness, like after many, many years. Finally, I think I caught a glimpse of it, and then, you know, and it lasted this one. But then I'm in some rotten fight with Aaron, my wife, and she's like, "So, tell me again about that big experience you had." like, oh, you're right. I said I'm a fraud. No, I'm a fraud. It was nothing. It was was BS. You're right. Oh, shame. Just like, I'll never believe it again. But then I was talking to her about that. And she said, you know, actually, I think you did have a glimpse of something. And, and, And when you have that sort of thing, it sort of soaks into the rest of your life to the point where you don't really notice it as much as maybe that first time you noticed. It doesn't mean it's So ridiculous to imagine that, because you catch some glimpse of maybe a, a more expansive reality that there that will all fights will end with your partner. No, but I'll tell you, the fights don't last as long, and they there's not that edge to them after that. It's like you're you're fine again. You sooner there's not that sense of you know, oh boy, this can't believe they did that that I used to do for people who did things to me years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe the, what, what, what happens and then, but still in all you still it would be nice to be enlightened, whatever that even is. Right. You, we would like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you're known for speaking about your own experience from a very real place. So uh, whether it's your podcast or, you know, your other encounters with people, your other expressions of yourself. So is there something that helps you keep it real? Obviously, your relationship is
0: one of those things. My wife keeps it yeah. real. She's the best. You know, in our wedding, Ramdas married us. And uh-huh. uh, in our wedding vows, whatever you want to call them, I'm like, please don't tell me you think a joke. I say it's funny if it's not, because it's like I'm a comedian. I need to know. I need at least someone who's going to just be honest. So, yeah, like anytime she sees me perform, like, so what'd you think? She's like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't your best. <laughs> and I, it's not mean. There's love there. Cause it's like, I need, I already know that, but you know, it's not like you don't aren't aware of that when you perform, but so yes, she helps keep it real for me for sure. And the kids, the kids help keep it real. You know, kids aren't going to tiptoe around the truth, but also, I, one of my friends a long time ago told me like, if you're telling the truth, like from where you're at, and somebody doesn't like you, then it's like someone who doesn't like a cloud or something. Like it's the truth. It's just where you're at. It's real. What else do you have other than that? I mean, if you don't really have anything else. So um, yeah, I I I think I'm just lucky because part of my job is not is being as authentic as I can be, and to be very authentic. I am not authentic all the time. There are things I won't say publicly and things I think sometimes and fleeting moments I have that I don't feel like sharing with the world, but uh, those are less than, I mean, I'm not afraid to talk about most things. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. There's a widespread belief in the West that art, great art comes uh, only from great suffering and clearly there's a way, you know, maybe even especially with comedy where there's a place of pain that is being metabolized in the process of of that making, you know, that creation. Yeah. But uh, in the East, it's also believed that great art can come from balance. It comes from compassion. It comes from other places. So I'm just wondering uh, if you've encountered that and if that's maybe changed. So, for example, I heard uh, Alice Walker on a paddle once with the Dalai Lama. And he was at, they were asked that question, you know, basically about art and suffering. And, um, and she said, that's how I was taught that that's sort of the world of poetry writing I grew up in. And, uh, but I'll say the happier I get, the better my poetry gets, which I thought was a very interesting thing. And I'll hear your response and I'll tell you what the
0: Dalai Lama said. Well, you know, I think it's a very dangerous, self-destructive and very tragic thing to think because you, you have this creative impulse and then because you have read the romanticized biography of people who might be exaggerating a little bit and people who you're believing. It's like you're believing the origin story of people and also you're assigning to people a kind of uh i don't know a, a singular sort of seed from which their are emerges you and, and and you're looking at people who are alcoholics who are drug addicts and who have who are have because of the nature of their work they're always around you know nightlife and stuff and at some point that uh having fun with people who came to see your show turns into alcoholism or drug abuse and all this stuff that springs from that. And you see that and you think, oh, if I want to be funny, I better like become a, 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 an alcoholic or I better make awful decisions or I haven't made awful decisions in my life. And therefore, I don't have the right to say anything funny. But, you know, I think the root of the thing is this. It's the first noble truth of Buddhism. There is suffering. It doesn't matter if you have the greatest parents on earth. It doesn't matter. You are in a body that is being aerosolized by time. You're being eaten by the universe, at least the form you're in right now. So that's enough suffering to write some funny jokes. If you're in a human body, you are suffering probably. Now, to think you need to extend that suffering to maintain a sense of humor no, sadly, no. Oh, if only. If only suffering wrote jokes. God, I'd have 50 books of jokes, Sheriff. Sadly, it seems to be related to work. Sadly, it seems like you need to sit down and write jokes and get on stage a lot and bomb in front of people as the jokes you thought were funny didn't work. And then if you keep doing that, you write funny jokes, regardless of whether or not your dad tied you to the bed and branded you with a, a poker from the fireplace or whatever. You really just have to, it's just like anything else. You have to like have, you have to work and have discipline. Seems like that to me. If I just, I'll let you know if I find out if there's another way, but
2: yeah. No, I think that's great. And uh, the, this is what the Dalai Lama said. He said in the same panel, Uh first he looked a little bit sometimes he gets this very bemused look on his face, like, what are they talking about? You know? Then he basically said, People are always dragging me off to look at things, like look at a building, to comment on the architecture, or look at a painting, to comment on its beauty or its extraordinary nature. And and he said, In uh Tibet, we have a belief that the measure of a work of art, of a creation. Is done by measuring what happened to the creator in the process of making it. Like, did they get kinder? Yeah. Did they get more enlightened? Yes. Did they get uh, more connected to the vulnerability of humankind? Whatever it is, he said. That's how we say something is beautiful.
0: That's cool. Or not. It was like a whole other measure, you know, of life. Wow. He should become a religious leader or something. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'll tell you, it's like uh, whenever I'm the most productive or whenever I'm inspired, it's, it's it, like it's definitely not coming when I'm super depressed. When I'm depressed, I don't want to answer. I don't want to do anything. I just want to like find a, a crawl under the porch. I don't want to do anything. And, but, if but, you know, but when things are harmonizing with my family and I feel good and I'm, I'm like, uh in, in in those that's that's when i get more creative it's not the i don't i don't i can't imagine how being crushed by your misery then produces any kind of good anything uh, but maybe for some people i i think i just think it's like writing is very difficult performing is scary mm-hmm. and we all want we all would love it if it if it didn't require what it requires, It'd be, it would be wonderful. And so the fan, you know, I, so a long time ago, I heard someone singing a poem about their ex boyfriend and saying like, just because you drink like Bukowski doesn't mean you write like him. And, and <laughs> it's like, the, I, I don't know that there's any real correlation between those two things. Most comedians I know are successful or like take they take really good care of themselves and they're like in therapy or they're you know actively trying to be healthy. They're not snorting rails of cocaine off of strippers or anything, though there might be a few out there who do that.
2: It's great. Uh, Because the last thing we need is to sort of romanticize suffering on top of everything else and and to feel, and people say that to me in one form or another all the time, like I'm afraid of losing my edge, I'm afraid of becoming kind of conventional, you know, and losing that inspiration, losing that
0: creative spark if I'm just conforming and This is a big confusion. It's confusion. It reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to misquote it here. There's some, I think it's in the last book. Aslan, like Neem Karoli Baba, has gone, has disappeared, has gone off to do whatever Aslan does, the Christ metaphor in those books. And um, one of the girls, I think her name's Lucy, I can't remember now, says to one of the kids, You know, where is Aslan? Why isn't he here? and the her friend says, he's not a tame lion. And I think that people get confused regarding this sort of thing because they imagine it to be some domesticated thing. They begin to associate it with like calming down in a kind of prudish way, no longer being wild. When in fact, generally, I think the misery, or, or, or the people who are confined in their egos, are far more restrained mm-hmm. and far more compressed, and far less likely to say some blasphemy than a person who's just purely in the moment and is not constantly thinking about the repercussions of what might come out of their mouth. You know what? What but and so what ends up springing out of the mouths of some of these people that I've met is sometimes what might seem irreverent, but it's the most beautiful thing you have ever heard and it's funny and it but it's wild. And it's not contro- you're not controlling that. It's perfect actually. It's perfect. And Mitzi, the owner of the comedy store, she would always just say it comes from love. It comes from love. There wasn't that it comes from horror. It was like love is the secret behind it all. She would say that and like she was not exactly what you would call like a woo-woo-ish hippie person. She was not like that, but she knew that because she'd been around comedians for her whole life and she loved comedians. So, yeah, love. Love is not tame. I don't know where that crept in. That Love is some kind of sweet, domesticated, nice, soft thing. It just sometimes it is. But, my God, if you've ever been around children, you know, if you've ever it's, – it's so – Wild and unpredictable, and and so yeah. No, I don't think you lose your edge at all. It's it's very edgy. Love can be very edgy.
2: So as soon as this is over, I want you to send me baby pictures, okay? Done. Whether they're in college or
0: something like that. Get ready for the time. They're already no, they're already in college. They're already yeah. in college. Both time is pretty fast. To Harvard. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're geniuses, much like their father. They. Are, <laughs> They are incredible though. And I will, you're about to get a tsunami.
2: Okay, great. Ready? I need that. That's good. Uh, and uh, one more question. How has attending to others helped you get out of
0: yourself? Oh my God. This is, this is, you know, I think it's really like in the same way it's dangerous to be like one of those psychedelic missionaries and think everybody needs to take acid or whatever. It's like, what are you talking about? Some people definitely do not need to take acid. Like people, uh, you know that fantasy. Any like anyone who's just like experienced psychedelics and has had a, a, a catharsis or healing, you start thinking, oh, if only fill in the blank. Oh, if Vladimir Putin could just drink ayahuasca, everything would change. And it's like you don't know that. You don't know what's going to happen if Vladimir Putin or you fill in the particular villain takes. Acid. They might suddenly be like, you know what? Why are we waiting to do the nuclear missile thing? We all live forever. Anyway, we don't need our bodies to exist. Let's just. So similarly, I think with people who are parents, they can accidentally slip into some kind of missionary thing where you're like, you need to have kids. It's the most beautiful, incredible thing that ever happened and and become like reproductive missionaries. Don't do that. Some people don't want to have kids and they shouldn't have kids. They don't want to have kids. What are you doing? So I'm just prefacing what I'm about to say with nothing has been better for me because I am professionally selfish. I like to gratify my senses. I like to fixate on myself. And you just can't do that when you've got kids. I mean, you could try. And certainly, there's a, there's a name for that. It's called being a bad parent. You 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 can't. You have to be with them, and you have to you fix them. You're fixing breakfast now, and you're tired, and you have never been this tired. You're making them. You're you're. Sometimes even when I'm bringing them food, I'll pretend to be a waiter, and they love that. Can I bring you anything else, sir? Sometimes the oldest will be like, can you act like a waiter, Dad? <laughs> but You know, I'll tell you, I know this is the last question. I might be running out of time, but not to get back into the miracle stories, because I agree with with that concept that these can be sand traps. But um, one morning, I'm fixing pancakes for the kids, and my mom loved Enya. So, like, I'm playing Enya, and thinking about my mom. And so I'm sitting at the table. Thinking about my mom. And then, like, I thought to myself, oh, this is what my mom felt like when she was making pancakes for me. Cause it felt just so, so beautiful, so perfect. The kids, you know, watching your kids eat, just like, oh God, it's the most beautiful thing. And like, it's just pure love. And it's not for I there wasn't even enough pancakes for me. I'm not eating pancakes. I'm just, but I'm just, oh, this is like what my mom, this is how my mom loved me, I bet. And, and then I realized this is my mom. Like, this is all moms. And then I realized I'm experiencing the experience of like, all. this is, this is the mother. I'm experiencing that. And right at that moment, and I don't know what he was thinking about, For, Forrest looks up at me and he goes, you found me. And it was the wildest thing. Just, you found me. And I, so that's the answer to your question is in that service, suddenly you, you don't just, you're no longer you, if you, you're, you're everyone who ever loves something so much that they weren't thinking about themselves anymore. And that's, that's a, that's what it's done for me. I mean, it's, I'm not there all the time. Sometimes I don't want to make pancakes, Sharon. Sometimes I want to sleep. Here's some yogurt, kid. <laughs> I'm going back to bed. But every once in a while, that happens. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I think that's what it's all about. It's beautiful.
2: So before we close our time together here, would you like to lead us in a short practice?
0: Are you? Oh, of course. Absolutely. I would love to. Okay, Great. Short, short, though. Um, let me start this short practice with what I say at the beginning of all, when well, I try to remember to say at the beginning of all the meditation groups. I am not a meditation teacher. I sporadically meditate. I don't like it a lot of the times. I don't want to do it a lot of the times. And I'm confused about probably fundamental aspects of Buddhism, even though I'm working with one of the incredible meditation teachers. So please do not imitate anything that I'm about to put out there. Go to Sharon. Participate in one of her Zooms. Uh, Inside LA, Spirit Rock, Love dot Dharma Moon. If you're in Asheville, hi- I would highly recommend Great Tree Temple. There's so many great teachers out there, but they're they're. I just try to meditate, and um, so that's the disclaimer. So this is the way that that uh, I meditate, and David Nickturn taught that to me. You was a student of Chogyam Trumpa. And this is basic. I've been working with him for a long time now. I'm pretty sure there's other levels of this in Tibetan Buddhism, but it just as an indication of where I'm at with it, he says to me, we do this in real time. In other words, whatever the other things are, maybe, maybe not for me in this lifetime. So this is how I meditate. I'm sitting in a chair right now. I like to sit on the floor. I have a zafu cushion is what it's called. It's just a pillow, but it's a, like a cool name for a pillow. Gets your butt up so that you can um your feet don't fall asleep when you meditate. You can find them on Amazon. You don't need it. You can sit in a chair if you want to. I just prefer the floor. So um what what I do is uh I try to have a nice posture. There's lots of books on this. It, obviously it, you can go as, it's a fractal you can go as deep into it the energy connection where the energy connects the chakras all is deep it's deep um but so this is again very basic straight back i put my hands with my fingers just above my knees and the i try to bring to mind the um god what was who is the mu- musician who was friends with Buddha? Uh, Sharon the, who is Buddha's associate? What's his name? I could never Sh- share, Yeah. yet. one, one musician a, it's it, our pre-trade, Moggallana, he had he had Ananda. Ananda. I think it might have been Ananda who said this again. My Buddhist friends out there, please don't judge me. You better not, you're Buddhist. The uh, not too tight, not too loose. Like a string. Oh, yeah, of, that, was, that was I don't think it was Ananda.
2: I don't know his name, but yeah, he had there was a monk disciple who was like really uptight in his meditation and, and, and the Buddha went to him. So what, back when you were playing the lute, what happens if you tie the
0: string too tight? What if it was too loose? Yeah. That. So I try to bring that to mind as far as posture goes, because uh, in the early days of meditating, I, it's like it, it needs to hurt. Like you need to just be rigid and stiff and it's just better hurt if it's real. No. But I've also noticed that in my posture, if I'm too loose, I get sleepy. So, um, and what's interesting about it, Tibetan Buddhism uh, is that they just, they say, well, if you're sleepy, just fall asleep. No big deal. You don't have to like try to stay awake, drift off. Congratulations. You got a little nap in there. It's great. But then if you look at Zen, people will invite their teachers to hit them on the back with bamboo to wake them up. Uh, so if you have some bamboo around and someone willing to hit you, <laughs> you with it, I don't. Um, So, yeah, uh, hands just above the knees, open eyes. Um, I, I, a lot of people close their eyes when they meditate, open eyes. And this is called the resting gaze. So, you're sort of looking down and you're just taking everything in. Um, there's a saying that I invented uh, that you could think about, which is be here now. I'm thinking about writing a book with that title. And then, so you sit with a straight back, hands above the knees, and you, I used to say you, you place your attention on the breath, but Sharon was generous enough to, to join our, uh, the Patreon group. And she said, actually, the translation, I think from P- 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 Polly is what you Polly. said, is rest your attention on the breath. And that it was such a wonderful adjustment, which is why you need meditation teachers. It's those little adjustments mean everything. Because if you're placing your attention or focusing your attention on the breath, it really doesn't convey the, the, the sort of soft quality to this. Uh, whereas resting your attention on the breath, it, 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 it's, that's it. That's for sure it. So now, Shogin Shompa Rinpoche and many others go into great detail about the out-breath and the in-breath and the space in between the out-breath and the in-breath. Highly recommend any book by him, YouTube videos by him, I won't get into that, but he, they don't go, they go into detail regarding the, uh, the, the, the breathing pattern itself. Um, but for now, just rest your attention in your breath. And when you get lost in your thoughts, which you definitely will, or when you get lost in big feelings, which could happen, The idea is think, don't run away from them. We're not doing whack-a-mole here. One of the names of meditation in Tibetan Buddhism is gom, uh, which means becoming familiar with So you're kind of just becoming familiar with yourself here. This is not whatever war on yourself you're waging. uh, You can actually not do the war for just a second and just let yourself be as, as you are. But When you find yourself lost in your thoughts or feeling big emotions, allow yourself that experience, but then think, thinking, and then return your attention to the breath. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I got in line. Did you watch me get in line? Wasn't it cool? It is. Is that-
2: Thank goodness. You said eyes open because I might've missed it. Oh my God. Wasn't it amazing? It was incredible.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to open a yoga studio. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. I love you. Thank you. this.
2: Thank you so much for sharing with us. This is really great. And it's been so nice right. to spend time with you and see you and in- watch your, your very enlightenment i was there then
0: well i know you saw it it's but, there gosh you, you wait till, god maybe you could paint a scroll of what you saw that would be right, maybe i could write a poem that would be wonderful
2: to learn more about duncan you can visit duncantrussell.com d-u-n-c-a-n-t-r-u-s-s-e-l-l.com thank you
1: Hey folks! Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's work, her virtual offerings, classes, courses—really, all things Sharon—you can visit her website at sharonsalzburg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And may you live with ease.